This forum is part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful for their generous support. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and a proud member. Today is November 16th. We're here with two impressive authors as part of our Lucille D. and Robert Hayes Grease Forum on the Cultural Arts. It's also the annual forum in which we partner with Cleveland's wonderful Annisfield Wolf Awards. Today's forum is also sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation's African-American Philanthropy Committee. We're joined now by Karen Long. She's manager of the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards at the Cleveland Foundation, and she'll introduce our speakers. Thank you, Dan, and good afternoon. On behalf of the Cleveland Foundation, we are proud partners to the City Club in hosting this virtual forum, the worldwide reverberations of Jamaica's 18th century slave revolts. The Annisfield Wolf Book Awards are 87 years old. They exist thanks to Cleveland poet and philanthropist Edith Annisfield Wolf to enhance our grasp of the rich diversity of human cultures and to blunt racism. The list of winners includes seven writers who went on to become Nobel laureates, artists who have set the table for some of the world's most important conversations. The Cleveland Foundation has administered the awards since Edith died in 1963. One of her legacies is the City Club partnership with the foundation to provide a forum for a winner every year. In fact, our moderator today, the novelist Marlon James, stood at the City Club lectern six years ago in that tradition. He is in conversation today with this year's Annisfield Wolf Award recipient for nonfiction, Vincent Brown, the Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. His book, Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War, tracks the coordinated uprising of enslaved people in Jamaica in 1760 and 1761. Their actions influence our notions of war and race to this day. Marlon James, who won his AW award for his profoundly Jamaican story, A Brief History of Seven Killings, grew up in its capital, Kingston. His second novel, The Book of Night Women, centers on a rebellion of people enslaved on a Jamaican sugar plantation around 1801. It was the first Marlon James book that Vincent Brown read. Turns out these two have been reading each other for years. Guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Marlon James and Vincent Brown. It's not every day I get to say hello, Cleveland. Okay, that went dead with everybody. But uh... <laughs> hello, 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 Marlon from Cambridge, and thank you so much, Karen, for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, Glad thanks to be with you. Thanks again, Karen, and so great to be here with you, Vincent. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I tried to think of all sorts of ways to, to jump into this, and the first thing I thought of, um, you know, not beyond us, you know, being a Jamaican, I remember growing up and hearing songs about Tacky's Revolt, and I can't remember what the folk song was, but we always heard about it, and and it's something we 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 grew up knowing about, but it's. It, the thing that struck me, even even from just from just reading the you know the prologue, and certainly in a way reading the prologue and then circling back to the end of it, that um, and this is a this this almost sounds like a weird thing to say, but there's a certain kind of let's use the word dignity in the word mm. war mm. that's not in say uprising or revolt mm. or or insurrection, and it, it, it's like in a, in a lot of ways the word like uprising in a strange way kind of reduces what was happening 
whereas war brings it up to a different level. Yeah. Is yeah. it important how we see that? I think it's 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 kind of vital. I mean, the first yeah. thing you have to understand is I grew up in San Diego, California, mm -hmm. uh, in the late Cold War period, right, when the United States was essentially always at war, and San Diego is a is a big military garrison. Yeah, uh, I had a lot of friends who joined the Marines or or the the Navy, um, and so they were kind of actively involved in this. So just being in a state at war is something that I grew up with. But you know, to go directly to your point. You know, mm -hmm. we tend to think of war as a more dignified in, endeavor with a larger mm -hmm. scope than something like a rebellion or an insurrection or an uprising or even a riot, which is often the way, you know, black uprisings are characterized. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do think that I was trying to attach what happened in Jamaica in 1760 and 61. But even before that and after that, mm -hmm. the uprisings that we see there um, with I think the more kind of dignified approach to warfare, the more respectful approach mm -hmm. um, that we take when we think about warfare. Now, I recognize that one of the things I'm doing there is taking a kind of genre of analysis right, mm -hmm. with war and applying it to something that it's not usually applied to. And so that encourages us to ask all kinds of questions that we don't ask when we just talk about slave revolt. So questions about tactical aims and strategies and territory. Um, and the scope of the conflict are mm -hmm. questions that are immediately, re immediately relevant when you think of these as wars, and they're not often asked in the same way when you just think of these as uprisings. Um, I guess in some ways, you know, I'm trying to do something that, I, that, that, that you did as well with the Book of Night Women. Um, mm -hmm. If I can characterize it properly, there's something about the Book of Night Women that's like a Victorian romance. Mm -hmm. But not with the kinds of characters you usually see in Victorian romances. Yeah. And so once we kind of, you know, appropriate the genre of the Victorian war man, romance or appropriate the genre of the war story for the kinds of characters and the kinds of activities that are not normally seen within those genres, mm. I think, you know, the story form looks different. And that's one of the yeah. things I was trying to do. Really yeah. Reopen yeah. the question of what war is yeah. by examining a slave revolt using yeah. these categories. But it's interesting you say that because I thought that when actually that um, when I was writing that woman, I also when I read your book that you by sort of uh, by appropriating this word, you end up seeing the situation correctly. Um, you see, you, you yeah. see things. You see things that you that you wouldn't otherwise see. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the things that has kind of been excluded from the study of slave revolts is how a lot of these people involved in slave revolts were involved in military campaigns mm -hmm. all over the Atlantic world, including military campaigns in Africa. Yeah. So many of the the soldiers who fought in Taki's revolt in Jamaica mm -hmm. in 1760 and 61 had fought in African campaigns before that. Yeah. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, one of the ways the slave trade operated was through the sale of European firearms, mm -hmm. to African political kingdoms, polities, uh, and the increase in the scale and lethality of African wars, which helped to produce more captives for sale to the Europeans. Mm -hmm. And they came out to staff the plantations, which facilitated the wealth of the Caribbean mm -hmm. and the Atlantic yeah. world. So war well, was very much part of the political economy of the yeah. Caribbean. But one thing you mentioned in the middle of the book is um, in its own way, in a way, without them knowing it, the slave trade, in a way, kind of funnels slave revolt. Yeah. Because all these war leaders, all these tacticians are being taken away and shipped to the Caribbean. And they bring, and they bring with it, you know, it's funny. It, 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 your book made me re realize even, I'm, I mean, I've been pretty proud of how much I learned my Jamaican history. And like, you Americans don't you know, know you yours. Know <laughs> but, but at the same time, it never occurred to me that what was happening was a kind of a skill kind of military tactic, as opposed to just these, how the Europeans say it, these skirmishes that it just couldn't stamp out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's partly, again, when we mm -hmm. think of revolt or insurrection or uprising, we're only thinking of a reaction. Mm -hmm. We're not really thinking of the initiative that Black people took on their own accord, all the different reasons they might have had for engaging in military conflicts, right, that mm -hmm. weren't just a reaction to the Europeans, although there was certainly that, but mm -hmm. also drawing upon previous historical experience and skills uh, and desires that, that pre-existed the slave mm -hmm. trade, pre-existed the, their enslavement in a place like Jamaica or in a place like South Carolina or in a place like New York.
Yeah. So those are Cal- what is a, a California dude get interested in Takir's Revolt in the first place? Well, um, I mean, in part of the same way I got interested in the history of slavery in the first mm-hmm. place, which is, you know, they didn't really teach a lot about the history of slavery or black history at all in my mm-hmm. schools or even in my high schools growing up in Southern California. So before there was a kind of freak out over critical race theory, yeah, <laughs> things ignored the subject altogether, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I began learning a lot of the the history that I that I care about now from like reggae musicians, right? right? So people like Bob Marley and Burning mm-hmm. Spear um, and Steel Pulse, the English reggae group. Uh, I learned a lot about you know the history of slavery, yeah. the history of the African diaspora, uh, about black politics from music. Yeah, and so in that way, my entry into the history of slavery was also an entry into Jamaican culture through mm-hmm. Jamaican music, and so my interest in Jamaica, I think, started there. Yeah, that Burning Spear album must have been big. <laughs> Huge! I saw Burning Spear like three, <laughs> four, five times. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god! You know, it's it's the thing that, that it, it did it did the same thing for me, but it it also for me and and this and it deliberately affected Nightwoman. It 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 also made me fall in love with the language, mm. um, because the the thing about reggae, um, when I was listening, you know, is that reggae was talking about very very serious things in a language that someone like the language that came out of my own mouth. Yeah, and it's it's um honestly you know in 76, when Burning Spirit is going, do you remember the days of slavery? And everybody's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or so. <laughs> But it was also the way it, the, the thing that always struck me about that is that uh, is and, and it, it, it ties to a, a sort of black storytelling was that he used present tense, yeah. You know, so that the 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 legacies of of Tacker's revolt of the Maroons are still all around us, yeah. In a way, you know, there's a there's a fantastic uh, literary scholar named Nadia Ellis. Mm-hmm. Um, who's at Berkeley, I believe, who's written a chapter on, on Burning Spear um, talk, and Nathaniel Mackey as well, but talking about how, how Spear, you know, invoked spirit possession, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in fact, kind of, you know, drew upon the spirits of ancestors in slavery and brought them forward into the present. That there's something about his music that, that brought the past into the present in, mm-hmm. a, very, in a very visceral way. Um, that the sounds that he made, which are often guttural, which are often kind of moans and shrieks, yeah. um, and not just words themselves, were part of these invocations that kind of helped, I think, animate the music. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that that analysis very rich and in, in something that kind of brings history alive for people. Yeah. Even when they say, like, no, I don't have a conscious memory of any of that, but can I can I commune through this music with some feeling, some mm-hmm. spirit of the past? I think that's one of the things that Burning Spear did for a lot of people. Yeah. You say, I remember, I remember, I just read it. You said um, rebel stories must be learned by their enemies. What challenge was that place on, on the historian? Yeah. Um, well, in many ways, it goes back to, to what you were saying about language, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have a distance, like not having grown up in Jamaica, not speaking Jamaican Patois. Like, you know, I don't speak in the language of Jamaican. So I'm kind of speaking in a, an American English, writing in an American English from outside. Right. In the same way that as I approach this story as a historian, I'm approaching the, you know, through the sources of the rebels' enemies, right? Mm-hmm. So I've got, you know, plantation records. I've got diaries like the notorious diary of Thomas Thistlewood. Oh, I read that. Overseer who is in Westmoreland. Yeah, it's a hard read. Um, he's a brutal, brutal, brutal character. And he's, mm-hmm. he's not unique. Um, military records, government records, et cetera, yeah. the records of traders um, and planters. But I don't have really anything that was written down by the enslaved. If you have any oral histories, they're many, many generations removed and passed down, but you can't hear, you know, people, you know, their, their voices or inscriptions that they made mm-hmm. at the time of the revolt. So you're always having to kind of read through these sources to mm-hmm. what might have been beyond. Yeah. So there's a lot of really heavy interpretive work. And the way mm-hmm. I think about that is you have to think about what the shaping forces on these sources were. Yeah. You can't just read them as, you know, transparent windows onto what happened. Yeah. Because they're too invested in describing, you know, their view of what happened, right? Mm-hmm. The planters. They hate the mm-hmm. rebels, quite yeah. obviously, right? 
but you have to kind of imagine why they wrote the way they did mm -hmm. and then think about what it was that was compelling them to write and that is the slave rebellion itself so the imaginative work happens kind of between the source and the thing that you you can't see the thing that mm -hmm. you can't know but you know there are more likely ways that a source can yeah. be compelled to inscribe something and in less likely ways and that's the that's where we work as historians. Yeah, it made me think as a as a as a, a reader and a, and a writer, um, it's 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 almost as, it's it's how do you parse the truth from an unreliable narrator? Mm. Kind of thing. That was the one thing. And I mean, I remember going through you know grappling with Thomas Tissot's diaries as, as as well. That's why I literally have a character punch him in the face in my novel because somebody is <laughs> yes. a dick, son of a bitch. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's it's the thing that 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 appalled me and horrified me was also the thing that drew me to the source that in a way it, it his his sort of um nonchalance almost makes it trustworthy yeah yeah like yeah, you know he, he doesn't the really license he felt was you know he was not being critical of himself no he was not writing for an audience who might judge him he was mm -hmm. just like casually noting his own brutality the rapes that he committed, mm -hmm. the punishments, the tortures that he administered. You know, he wasn't he wasn't ashamed of them at all. He wasn't yeah. trying to justify himself at all. And so you're right. I mean, I think you can read those as facts on the ground in that way. Mm. Yeah, it's just like I was saying, you know, I as somebody else, you know, I actually trust the testimony of a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> because they have nothing invested in that deal. It's 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 uh it's interesting. You know, when I was reading this, and um, I think once a, re a reviewer commented on it, and it made me think about it. But again, one of the things that this book had me doing is rethinking certain things. That in a way, Taki's revolt and and the the what happened before and what after constitute almost the very first forever war. Yeah. yeah. So that's definitely. I mean, look. Like I said, you know, coming from the United States in the late 20th and early 21st century, um, you know, I was born in 1967 at the height mm -hmm. of the Vietnam War. And, you know, in my 50 plus years of living, I can't name you a five year period where the mm -hmm. U.S. military hasn't been abroad in the world somewhere, you know, engaged in conflict with somebody. Mm -hmm. So I consider that, you know, more than a half century of continuous warfare. So, in mm -hmm. fact, you know, I'm primed to see that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. When you go and you look at 18th century Jamaica or the 18th century Atlantic world more generally, and you see these European wars, which are constant, the wars between Britain and France mm -hmm. and Spain and Britain and the Netherlands and all of these European powers. And then you see the wars between the African polities that I mentioned that are producing these enslaved captives for sale. And then you see these slave revolts. It all looks connected. Mm -hmm. It all looks like a kind of you know, continuous state of endemic warfare. Um, which doesn't have clean beginnings and endings. Right. And therefore, it looks much more like the kind of warfare that we're growing accustomed to, where you don't mm -hmm. just have like, you know, a four year period marked off with a with a proper name. Right. Yeah. And you a big battlefield and all of that. Stretches and bleeds out and doesn't have clean, clean battle lines and doesn't have, you know, distinctions between civilians and non-combatants. Mm -hmm. um, can start in one place and end in another place on the other side of the world. That's the kind of warfare I think these these slave wars represent, mm -hmm. and it turns out it's the kind of warfare that I think we've become, you know, we've grown more accustomed to. Yeah, it's a kind of warfare that's always been there. I mean, if if the if yeah. the U.S. had lost the Revolutionary War, then they would have said it was a series of guerrilla attacks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it just yeah. would have been kind of a continuous sequence sequence mm -hmm. between the other wars between Britain and France. We would have folded yeah. into the the middle point between the Seven Years' War and the Napoleonic Wars in a much neater way. It yeah. would have come to seem a clean break point if it hadn't, uh, you know, in, uh, if it hadn't um, resulted in the creation of a new nation state. Yeah, you know, this book was surprising me from page one, and I thought I knew my stuff. Ah, <laughs> but it's it's I'm I'm very curious because I I I'm keep thinking I must have heard of a Pongo, I must have heard of this guy. And I never heard of him. How did he, he vanish? From Thistlewood. He's right there in Thistlewood. That's the. And I'm like, and I read the Thistlewood, and I'm like, I'm, and I, 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 it makes me wonder. The, the thing about this that I love is it's sort of excavated, excavated people who we might not have heard of who are actually pretty crucial. Yeah. Um, 
And it made me wonder what is is, is there. I mean, I'm sure there are tons, but um, aspects of this in the research stage that surprised you. Yeah, I mean that that story surprised me. Yeah, in part because you know we know about Tacky as a named leader of the revolt, mm-hmm. um, and we call it Tacky's revolt ever since Edward Long's kind of first narrative description of Tacky's revolt in his 1774 history of Jamaica. But there were so many other important principal leaders, perhaps even more important than Tacky, mm-hmm. that that come forward that emerge when you go back into the event and you read the sources sources closely. So mm-hmm. I guess the big surprise for me that, you know, maybe Tacky's revolt should be put in scare quotes. Yeah. It might not have been Tacky's revolt at all because mm. some of these other people who led the revolt, yeah. who led, I think, much more intensive uh, um, uh, dimensions of the campaign mm-hmm. really are, have gone unacknowledged because they weren't acknowledged by Edward Long and the yeah. planters who wrote about it. God, I, I remember that Edward Long's history. That was a riot reading that. As a, but you know it's it's what the the made me think of 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 um something else you mentioned in the book um these sort of situations where there's sometimes it happened without us knowing where a person of uncommon um sort of a, a noble or a prince or somebody of of of, of a, a really decorated soldier or or sort of war figure gets kidnapped or yeah. in, in slavery. One, I think once or twice, somebody recognized it and go, you better bring back my son or else. Yeah. Right. But what was interesting about, one reason I wondered why Apongo was sort of erased is a point you brought up elsewhere that if it became known that noble princes are fighting this thing, mm. then it becomes, it, it actually becomes a kind of a war. It becomes a, a more dignified struggle and they couldn't have that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so one of the things about enslavement is the suppression of of the dignity of enslaved people, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a constant, you know, attempt and need to to basically defame um, mm-hmm. anybody that the British are fighting if they're enslaved, so they don't have to recognize them as legitimate combatants, right? So they don't have to recognize their struggles as actual wars, so they mm-hmm. can just be uprisings or reactions to what they think of as duly constituted authority. Yeah. So that denigration is constant. And so you constantly see when, you know, when they do recognize even Tacky, there's an mm-hmm. there's an attempt to diminish his sexuality. Right? Mm-hmm. That this is this 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 happens all the time, right? Where anybody that seems to hold some kind of power, right? The first thing they want to say about them is, well, they're after white women. Mm-hmm. It's kind of automatic that that is how an African would would see their aspirations. That's what they would reduce them to. Yeah, Greg Tate, Greg Tate wrote in this essay in uh, Michel Enigacello's first album. He says, the Mer- American myth of the black sex machine gone berserk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you even see it in, you know, you mentioned Edward Long, right? Yeah. So kind of, he writes these crazy things all about, really- about black sexuality. Yeah. That, you know, you think they have no place yeah. in just a kind of, you know, a mature characterization of a conflict between masters and slaves, mm-hmm. but they're fundamental to the way Edward Long seeks to push these people down. Yeah. I Somebody asked me, give me an idea for a surprise birthday present. Say, go read Edward Long's history to make it. It's a riot. Yeah. It's yeah. um because <laughs> it's it's a riot. But, you know, by his own standards, he actually was pretty thorough. He was just oh, kind yeah, of a jackass. of the 18th century, he's a good historian, right? Yeah. He reads his sources carefully. He weighs his evidence. You know, he kind of he brings things forward. He makes clear arguments. So, mm-hmm. you know, as 18th century historians go, just comparing him to his peers, mm-hmm. uh, and as they did, he was a well-respected intellectual. Right? But it's interesting how his hatred of of, of um, Black people ultimately made, it, ultimately made his, his history pretty much, you know, irredeemably flawed, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, irredeemably flawed if you want to find out what Black people are doing. Yeah. And if, you're, and if your purpose is to actually describe Black politics and Black history, Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely flawed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also indispensable because mm-hmm. you know black politics is reacting mm-hmm. to that campaign against their dignity that Edward Long is very much a part of. That he is. Yeah, it, it. I used to. I. I always lump it with Lady Nugent's journal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which I read because somebody has to. <laughs> yeah, you get the, the sort of the whole how um all it really is um but also but also i mean one of the things about that that i think is so fascinating mm-hmm. about these stories and it's something that you get in your writing is mm-hmm. that people's fears and fantasies are very much a part of the history 
Mm -hmm. Sometimes we try to distinguish that from, you know, the kind of hard material history we want to write when it's it's a fundamental part of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and so you can't really write the history honestly unless mm -hmm. you're writing about all these crazy distortions that are often psychosexual. Mm -hmm. It is. It's, it's like reading, you know, writing um, these these sort of African fantasy novels that I've been writing. And yeah. one of the things that I end up doing is going back and read all histories of African continent, mostly for entertainment value. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's like watching Tarzan movies or whatever. I know it's 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 absolutely thoroughly ridiculous, but it, it's ridiculous. But it's 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 almost um, book after book is just this sort of um, parade of people's fears and desires that they then act on. Yeah. yeah, as opposed to actually observing anything. Yeah, yeah, it's a fundamental part of the story, which is why kind of when you get back to observing these sources and trying to watch how things unfold over time at the time by stacking mm -hmm. these sources up, you see a lot of surprising things. Yeah. One of the other things that you know may not surprise you, but surprise me, was that we have this list of the first 25 people captured in Tacky's Revolt on the north side of the island in the parish of St. Mary. Um, there were 25 people that were captured of the, mm -hmm. of the uprising and put aboard a ship. And anytime somebody comes on board a Royal Navy warship, they gotta, they gotta put them on the muster. Mm -hmm. So you get these 25 names and 10 of those names are identifiably women's names. Hmm. So 40% of these first rebels captured are women. Yeah. And that's about their percentage of the population in the parish of St. Mary, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, women are represented in this revolt proportionate to their, their numbers in the population. Yeah. And historians of warfare and historians of slave revolt, aside from a few like Thavolia Glimp and Aisha Finch, have not really considered women's participation in slave revolts as carefully as they should. When, mm -hmm. you know, certainly here they are right at the very beginning of this campaign. Yeah. Why do you think that that erasure upon erasure happens? I mean, I think it's because people see through the categories that they already have, right? So mm -hmm. they have these kind of, you know, frameworks. And it's hard to see things that fall outside the framework. You, you select, right? You're selective in your, even in your vision. Um, mm -hmm. And if you think of something as a war, you already think that that's gendered in a certain way. That's a masculine activity. And so the women must be doing something else. Mm -hmm. And so you just, you just fail to see them. Yeah, they're, they're Florence Nightingaling up the place. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Yeah, it's um yeah. When I I, I read your book, I, I it's funny because I I read your book from from it was one of my it was one of my pandemic books. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I also you know I was I also read it <clears throat> around the same time I was reading Julia Scott's the book Commonwealth. Oh yeah, he was one of my teachers. Oh yeah. yeah oh yeah. my God! The first time I read Commonwealth, I think I read it as a printout. Hey. So that was one of the most famous dissertations yeah. that were written in the field of African diaspora studies or Atlantic slavery studies. Literally, yeah. that was a dissertation from 1986. Yeah. There were only a few copies of it around. And we used to pass it around like an underground mixtape. I still don't know how I got it. Just like, have you read this thing? You got to listen. You got to read yeah. this thing. You know? <laughs> I can't remember how I got it. But I was reading Common Wind and I was reading Fistful of Shells. Oh, yeah. Um, Toby yeah. Green's book. And the thing I thought about with with these books is is not to lump them together, but the thing I, I did notice is an approach to history that is actually expanding it mm. in a way, in, including your book. That, that I just I couldn't get over how it was just the sense of even the physical sense reading it of my world being expanded, ah. uh, history being expanded, and and I think because even and even words like war. And, and so on that that this that we we that even as uh, coming from a country where we learn to celebrate Taki's revolt, we still we celebrate it, but we reduce it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as as opposed to seeing it as part of a continuum, as seeing it as part of a forever war, as seeing it as these are skilled tacticians launching a kind of warfare. That's actually how we fight war. Look, man, I think going back to this question of the frameworks in which we are prepared to see things. Mm -hmm. It's part of the long history of the diminishment of black people, frankly, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, we can imagine like the enslaved revolting against the planter mm -hmm. or just against the whites or just on a plantation or just in a colony. But to imagine them with a geopolitical frame of reference, mm -hmm. that has been very hard to do. Yeah. You know? To imagine them as having kind of political aims and desires 
that aren't simply reducible to a reflection or a reaction mm -hmm. to what white people are aiming to do, that's been hard to do. Yeah. Um, you have to first ask that question. So using words like war, thinking of people's activities as stretching across continents and on an Atlantic canvas mm -hmm. already is a way of allowing us to see things that were clearly happening, right? Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's hard when you start with, okay, here is a slave, they're socially dead, kind of in a mm -hmm. lot of in a lot of uh, a, a theory, um, and therefore, kind of all we can understand is mm -hmm. the the things that limit their world. Right. We can't that, understand the world that they would want to create. Yeah. Or even the worlds that they have come from. Mm -hmm. And and that everything that they're doing is reaction, everything as opposed to action or strategy you know, or planning black politics seriously right and it's mm -hmm. not it's not always going to be a story of, of great virtue mm -hmm. but it's going to be a story you have to take seriously as a story of initiative and not yeah. just a story of reaction as i've been saying all right i knew this was going to happen that i was going to forget that we have to ask questions so um so if you have questions for either of us you can text 330-541-5794 that's 330 Five four one five seven nine four. You can also tweet them at City Club at the City Club, City Club bracket at the City Club, and we'll try to work them in. And so I have a question for you while we're waiting to gather them, mm -hmm. which is, you know, when you read history, I know you sometimes read it for entertainment, especially those old histories. Mm -hmm. but like, where do you see as the the limits of what historians can do that really kind of provide you an opportunity to do something else, to mm -hmm. do something more imaginative? than we have mm -hmm. access to because of our, our genre rules or our limitations as, as professional historians. I mean, to me, it's not even so much a limit as where is my, where's the jump off point? Yeah. And I okay. think, you know, for me, it's, it's um, how do some of the things that I know that happen in history affect people on a day-to-day -day level? Yeah. Or on a, on a, you know, I'm like, you know, on a, yeah, on a, how does this thing affect her Wednesday? Yeah. Um, or how they view women. Like um, one of the, my favorite things to write in 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 Book of Nightwind was actually when the white woman Isabel says, "Have you heard what Edward Long has written about us?" Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. I, you know, and her conversation that must have happened, right? Yeah, it must, it must have happened. happened. It's it's yes, but it, it must have because um, Mansfield Park couldn't exist without that. Or Sanditon couldn't exist without that. Somebody has sent out this thing about the the Creole white woman is a wild beast, yeah, who right. may be slightly tainted. And I, and I think for me as a fiction writer, I mean, in some ways, I'm not that different from Austin in that I take that shit and run with it. <laughs> um, and I think that's it. I I'm very curious about how that how that played out on a domestic level, which is why. I really grudgingly hated how much I got from Thomas Thistlewood. Yeah, right. Because ultimately, this boy just so flipping basic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but it's sort of um, the dynamics between slave and slave and slave owner, where sometimes he can be going off for, you know, on a hunt with some of his you know strongest slaves and not worry for a second that they're going to try anything. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And and just the the and I'm very you know it's there in all the historical texts, but it's there just how the how how these systems of oppression and control and brutality work on a, on an ordinary level, yeah. you know. And then I'm also sort of reading books that also deal with that, like Beloved, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, you know, and and you know, and and how yeah, how how that plays out on a domestic level. I think some of that I. Some of that I just had to imagine. Some of that, I mean, the sources earlier that I didn't get to. I mean, God bless the Elsa Govears and Roy Augiers. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and those guys. It's, just, you know, it's funny. I still visit more history departments than English departments. Is that right? Yeah. Interesting. Huh. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's very important. In fact, I never consider myself a historical novelist, but that's how, you know, those things came about. It, All right, we got a question. Yeah, we got a question. This one says, in both of your books, enslaved drivers seem like key characters, but they're portrayed in very different ways. In Taki's Revolt, for example, before Oponga was a rebel leader, he was a driver. In Nightwoman, drivers were identified by the women who rebelled as enemies, as defenders of the plantation re regime, 
who stood in the way of a successful rebellion. Could you both speak a bit about the role of enslaved drivers in Jamaican slave society? Yeah, I'll start. But I think that the, the, the answer is that they're both, right? So yeah. they are there as representatives of, of planter authority, helping to keep the plantation working. They are privileged in that regard uh, mm -hmm. over and above other slaves. And some of those privileges you know, include access to women, unfettered access to women. So mm -hmm. um, they would be seen, I think, as enemies of a lot of the women on plantations. At the same time, you know, that authority that they wield gives them a certain capacity as organizers. Mm -hmm. and so you do find across, you know, uh, plantation slavery in various countries, drivers often being involved in organizing slave rebellions mm -hmm. because they are used to wielding coercive authority. Mm -hmm. um, they they have connections, right? Um, yeah. And so and so they can lead rebellions for that reason. Yeah, it's both. And the question mm -hmm. is, like, what un, under what circumstances does a driver go from being merely representation of, representative of plantation authority to being a rebel? Uh, mm -hmm. That is why the predicament of the enslaved becomes so so key to look at moment by moment. What's happening? that's shaping their vision of what their own possibilities are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me also, for for, for Nightwoman, I, I think it is complicated, even though in a lot of ways, the, the, over, the overseers are the, the flattest characters in in my book, and, and kind of um, deliberately so because of just how we grew up and heard about overseer and so on. But, you know, sure. but also we grew up hearing stuff about the house Negro. And it's, that's why it was very important for me that this was a book about house slaves, because we also have this idea of house slaves being complicit. Yeah. yeah we get as that through Malcolm X as well, right? Yeah. House slave versus field Negro. Yeah. You know, I was like, yeah, but you know, in these houses, if the, if the, if the soup was too salty, somebody got whipped. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 um, in both, in what, what, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the thing that they have in common, the way I was treating house slaves and the way we're writing about an overseer is that even the idea of their one thing is still reductive. And it's just not, it's, it's just not like that. Uh, so there's a third question. It says, oh, when I said, for when you said forever war, I thought of the continuing struggle against police murder and white supremacy. Maybe I was only thinking narrowly about struggle as opposed to real military uprisings. Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things I'm trying to do is uh, confuse the easy distinction mm -hmm. between the kind of violence that you're talking about um, and the kind of violence we associated with with large scale geopolitical wars. Mm -hmm. So when you look at this slave revolt, right, it's policed by individual planters, by the militia that's composed of individual planters, and then by the British Army and the Royal Navy and mm -hmm. the Marines and the allies that the, the government has made um, of the Maroons after the treaties that they signed. Right. right? So <clears throat> I can't draw for you a clear distinction between a military campaign and, a, and police violence or individual racial violence in this mm -hmm. kind of situation. Because I don't think that that kind of distinction really helps us understand what's going on, frankly. It helps yeah. us not to see the kind of connections that I think are really important. So I actually end the book with someone who um, is kind of walking along a muddy road and yeah. Montezuma. Montezuma. Yeah. yeah. Drives by him and they splash him <laughs> with mud. It's 1792. The Haitian Revolution is raging nearby and people mm. know it. Um, and he says, you know, he does, he's not having it. And he says, mm. you know, you may drive Negro out of the path now, but pretty soon Negro will turn you out of the path. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, they freak out and they organize a kind of hasty interrogation, essentially a trial. They find out that there's not really a <clears throat> there's not really a, a conspiracy to be discovered. Mm -hmm. but the distinction between just this refusal to be to, to, of, of the slight of his dignity mm -hmm. and the planters understanding that this could be part of a revolutionary war. There's not a distinction. Yeah. Right. And in their, in their imagination, it's the same thing. And I suggest that in Montezuma's, it might be, too. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a reason for refusing those distinctions. Yeah. My problem with the distinction, with, 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 with looking at it, with, with looking at police brutality and so on in that way, is that 
the the thing about war and the term war is that in its own way it kind of puts people on equal footing and mm -hmm. white supremacy you know white supremacy is oppression it's atrocity it's uh it's you know you ain't met equal in war <laughs> you're coming you know you're, you're basically coming in a crime you know it's it's um yeah. it's yeah but it's um so i think that's i think that's an important caveat um mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and i take the point and i think it's an important one but you know, I think again, we're more used to to um, asymmetrical warfare now than we were. That mm -hmm. warfare is not always between equals. That there's kind of warfare against populations, mm -hmm. um, and populations try to strike back in in ways that they can, without presuming that there are you know that there's any kind of equality between combatants. Mm -hmm. uh, I. Until we get another question, one of the things that struck me because talking about more modern parallels, the modern parallel I was drawing when I read the book is the whole idea of a garrison country. Because mm. I'm like, man, that that was the seventies. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's right. what do what, you think? Do you think there there is a sort of um, lasting, let's call it damage or damage legacies that those things do on countries like Jamaica? I really do. And I mean, I hear, I think, you know, the fact that we're probably about the same age and we're both mm. kind of children of the, of the late Cold War period, yeah. where, you know, during the Cold War, the, the United States and the Soviet Union had lots of garrison countries, mm -hmm. right? All of these proxy wars, like the one fought in Jamaica in the 1970s, like the one fought in Afghanistan in the 1980s, mm -hmm. um, you know, these were fought all over the world and they did have, you know, extremely consequential and deleterious effects on these societies, right? They mm -hmm. made violence endemic and yeah. habitual. They flooded these places with, with firearms. Mm -hmm. uh, and those things don't just go away when the, when the main theater of the war moves on. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, you know, in, in my book, I think I'm trying to suggest that if, if you take my premise that slavery itself is a kind of state of war, mm -hmm. it helps to explain why the post-slave societies of the Americas are so violent across the board, right? Mm -hmm. So we tend in the United States to think of police violence mostly as a kind of like, you know, white on black racial violence. Now, mm -hmm. this is limited already even here because our police kill maybe like a thousand people a year, uh, disproportionately black and brown, but not all of them, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, 500 of those people may be poor white people uh, mm -hmm. that are being killed by the police. It's just more acceptable to kill people here. But mm -hmm. that's also true in Jamaica, right? Yeah. Where the yeah. police are, you know, predominantly black. It's also mm -hmm. true in Brazil. Like mm -hmm. most of these post-slave societies are violent societies, and I yeah. think that that is a carryover, right? Something that's established in mm -hmm. the era of slavery in all of these places. Yeah, and and they all also have a history of um, of the police being the tool of enforcing oppression. Yeah, um, Jamaica certainly, you know, from the eighteen sixties to the nineteen thirties. 1938 and all of that. Um, and so, so, so there are those parallels. Question, this is a uh, question for this new mode of history that you discuss is emerging as a nation experiences a backlash, white lash against history and culture and how they're taught in K-12 education. How should communities deal with this? Ooh, um, I'm not, so I'm not a K-12 through educator, so I don't have <laughs> <laughs> good answers. Me neither. <laughs> It's going to be a bit of a dodge, but mm. I do think, you know, you want honesty. Uh, mm -hmm. And the most important thing is people to honestly engage our history. Like if we don't observe that history clearly, learn from it so that we can orient ourselves in the present in relationship to our past. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can, you know, make good decisions about how we're going to act on our common values for the future. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think, I mean, I think history is vitally important. So the idea that we would just say, okay, if history is uncomfortable for people, mm -hmm. if it unsettles the myths of our own virtue and goodness, you know, it's it's gonna it's gonna make it that much harder for us yeah. to act in virtuous ways in the present and the future. Yeah, I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that level of generality. Yeah, my response to that is that I think Americans need to realize that you know the culture war is also a forever war. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's it's and the main places these are being fought now is like school and the library. You know, it's and I said, you know, if 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 um, you know, if if a librarian gets fired in an obscure county in Texas, you probably won't will not hear about it. Right. You know, right. <laughs> and yeah. um, 
you know, the critical race theory, which far as I know, no high school has ever taught. You know, no, and you see the, ex the example they use is let's get Toni Morrison's books out of school. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I, I do think people may be, the, the answer after that question is it, a lot of it goes back to, to parents and, and students and so on that the culture war never ended. And that they have, you have to be, they have to be as vigilant as the people trying to take the books away. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah are, we, are we are we better off that I didn't learn anything about slavery in school and I instead learned it, learned it from music? I doubt <laughs> it. I mean, I think that that school's abdicating their responsibility to teach actual American history. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody said, you know, if you're teaching people to take pride in things they weren't a part of, then you're gonna have to teach them to take shame in things they weren't a part of too. Fair enough, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, as 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 long as we're going to talk about Thomas Jefferson mm -hmm. and George Washington, let's talk about their slaves too. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm cool with continuing to talk about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. Yeah, I just want to acknowledge that they were slaveholders. P P Jelly Claret, a sci-fi sci-fi fantasy author, has this stunning short story about the previous previous lives of George Washington's false teeth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's an incredible story. Uh, another question is, a lot of world history taught in America is largely told and centered around European power, influence, and successes. Your book flips that, this on its head. Do you think there will ever be a time when BIPOC contributions to the creation of the world as we see it today will truly be incorporated? I can't predict the future, but we, hey, we have to write it. I mean, that's yeah. that's what we're doing here, right? We're mm -hmm. we're basically um, not we're we're refusing uh, the reduction of Black history to the history of racism. Mm -hmm. right? um, and in my case, I I want to write the history of the enslaved, not just the history of slavery. Yeah. And here again, I mean, I think I learned from 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 novelists, um, historical mm -hmm. novelists, and others, for mm -hmm. whom like the predicament of the individual is mm -hmm. where they start. Right, with yeah. the character and the character's desires. And if you start again with the initiative of these people, it's not you're not just writing about their condition mm -hmm. and reacting against, you're writing about them. And I think that's where we have to go with yeah. black history too. And we build out from there. Yeah. Not just a contribution, but like the way that black people make worlds. Mm -hmm. Um that to me is fundamental, but you got you just got to put in the work, right? Yeah. Do you see that as a moving away with with history? Because a lot of times you you know if people could reduce history as a story of famous people, yeah. Um, that sort of um, tracking down like a Montezuma. How important is that when we as we continue to tell these stories? It's always it's always been important to me. Um, yeah. In part because look, if if part of what we're trying to figure out with history is a process that's unfolding, it's still unfolding. That process wasn't driven only or mostly by those important or famous people, mm -hmm. but by those states, right? Those people in those states are reacting to forces, we could say from below, yeah. that are just as important as their initiatives. Um, and so I wanna understand kind of what those forces are coming from below. Mm -hmm. And that, that means looking at the common people and their aspirations of what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and how they're in, in in some ways compelling an Edward Long to write the way that he writes. Yeah, yeah. For me, for fiction, I you know I just follow what what Toni Morrison said. Write the books, write the, the books you want to read. Yeah. You know, write the stories that you want to be told. A lot of times they aren't told because you haven't written them yet. That's great. Yeah. You know, and you, you kind of have to do this. Um, Somebody says, I don't know, this question maybe for me or both of us. Can we can you talk about sister writers Erna Broadway and Velma Pollard and their literary significance in Jamaica? I leave that to you. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that the, the significance of right, both of those writers is and this is and I can't I can't say this, you know, I can't say this um enough. The way in which they paved the way for language, subject matter as well. Um, both write about, you know, center issues on on women and 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 the, the cycles of of strength and violence and so on that they have to live through and so mm -hmm. on. But even more than that, they both also liberate language. Um, something that reggae musicians also did. The idea that the the voice coming out of your own tongue can speak serious things. And, and talk about serious and complicated and things that we're, you know, deeply, you know, deeply uh, ambivalent about. Yeah. 
How much did the 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 sort of the the this the the fiction and the folklore and the songs and this, all these other sources help you in writing a story uh something about jamaica i mean it, it shapes it shapes my intuition right mm -hmm. um and 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 compels certain kinds of questions that may not otherwise be asked and i think right. i was going to go back to you know what what fiction does for me as well mm -hmm. which is when i read you know your work it, it raises questions for me that then I can go back to the sources with. Mm -hmm. And it helps me again with the framing to see things that I might have looked past before. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that way, kind of works of imagination kind of really help me to see things that are there. And then I can, you know, I can document right mm -hmm. uh, the answers to questions that are raised by by fiction writers that are raised by musicians that are raised by folk artists and things like that. Mm -hmm. So one sees that. <clears throat> You know, um, the shaping of what we think is important, and the kinds of the kinds of inquiries we make, the kinds of questions we ask, mm -hmm. um, the way we might want to talk about something, mm -hmm. that happens in this other realm. It's not just about you know what I see from the sources. Like I said, the sources don't tell me transparently what was happening. Mm -hmm. I got to pose questions of the sources. Those questions come from my life, my experience, mm -hmm. the, the other kinds of, you know, cultural media that I ingest. Right. Um, and that way, there's always this kind of feedback loop between, you know, the imaginative culture of literature and and the more documentary uh, writing of history. Mm -hmm. Was that an evolution for you as a historian? I think so. But as I yeah. said, I mean, I came to this history through another medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This history through through music. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, one of the other kind of major influences on me in terms of the history of slavery was the television show Roots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so already <laughs> kind of, I was bringing questions that I that I brought from popular culture and media yeah. to, to the analysis of history. And as it turns out, as I said, you see different things in the sources when you ask different questions. Mm -hmm. um, we have a question. What are the histories that need to be written? The ones you want to read? Oh, I <laughs> So I'll tell you, my my younger daughter, who's fourteen now, um, mm. she said, well, "You know, why don't you why don't you write a happy story next?" <laughs> <laughs> and I don't I don't know that I can do that. Frankly, uh -huh. I don't know if I've got it in me, but I do really appreciate stories of of unlikely fellowship and solidarity, mm -hmm. people coming together who wouldn't necessarily be thought to come together. People mm -hmm. working together for common goals that um, in really difficult and extreme circumstances, mm -hmm. those kind of stories really appeal to me. Those are my favorite parts of movies, right? When yeah. people who should be enemies uh, wind up becoming friends for some reason. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm now working on a book on the African diaspora um, oh. through the through the era of slavery, all about how people come together to create new expressive forms in dance mm -hmm. and in music um, and in literature and art. And through that, they make common cause, struggle to maintain their dignity, uh, even in slave societies, mm -hmm. uh, and create actually peoplehood out of that. So those stories of fellowship and solidarity, I, I think those are the stories that I want to read um, that, I, that I'm hoping to write next. Mm -hmm. Ah, it's funny when you said that, I, I did think about, you know, growing up that there was a certain kind of, of dignity that we used to get through knowing these folk songs. And 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 not sometimes not knowing how far back they went, but knowing that you know, knowing that we, we you know we 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 are learning something special here because my grandmother probably used to sing it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, I mean, what, so when Marley sings, you know, I remember we used to sit in a government yard in Trenchtown, uh -huh. observing the hypocrites. One could think of a government yard in Trenchtown and merely describe the slum, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can think about the fellowship that's invoked there. Right? Yeah. The vision, the critical vision mm -hmm. invoked by sitting in that government yard and looking out on the world and having a critique. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's powerful and it's in fact yeah. beautiful. Um, even though one could see it as like, oh wow, look at the desperation of these people, look at mm -hmm. their conditions, look at the misery they look in. And Marley was telling us, no, look at our critical perspective on the world. And yeah. That's I, yeah. And also the the we part. That yeah. it's that you're talking. We're talking about fellowship. That that the, the the so on. It's it's yeah, but it's again. It's um. It's doing two things. Which which you know. It's 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 empowering voice. But it's also empowering voice to talk about the world right in front of you. 
you know, which is something I know as a writer, it was something I, you know, the first stuff I used to write, I was still trying to write about England. Yeah. yeah I'm still, I'm still trying to, I'm still trying to, you know, have two kids lost in, lost in some, in Harrods trying to buy a Paddington. <laughs> but there's, no, there's that framing issue, right? You already knew yeah. it was important. And so if you're yeah. going to be a writer, you got to write about England. Otherwise you're not writing. Right. Right. And, and, and so the whole thing about, you know, that you, the, the world outside your window is where reacting yeah. about. It's fine. Right. What I found out is I didn't set out to like write like historical novels, but every time I kept looking, I kept looking behind me. Because it's, um, I'm, I, again, you know, uh, the thing about this that I like is, is, um, it don't, it's, it's as a, you know, a Jamaican, I am always sort of curious to the point of obsessive of how did we get here? Right. Yeah. And, and, and so on. And not just the, the oppression, but also, you know, the legacies of rebellion and organization. Because that type of community activism never died. I mean, Jamaica's independent movement came with that type of community activism. You know, which they probably learn from from yeah, and, and the question of how we got here helps to address the question of where we're going. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I when I was reading, um, uh, you know, the the just the whole framing of 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 this as, as a new kind of of warfare, it made me think of this article I wrote once about Kendrick Kendrick Lamar's song "Black of the Berry." Oh, I gotta read. I love that song. I gotta read that article. Yeah, but yeah. but I, I I'm not the only person who went. Brother, I was with you until that third verse. Because he talks about Zulu versus Zosa and he was comparing it to Crips versus Blood. Yeah, right. I know. I was like, dude, this is you're talking about the rules of engagement in war. These ain't some gangbangers. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> and so yeah. but it's it's again the it, and I and I and I and I sort of came after him about it, about that 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 your where'd you publish that? I gotta I gotta yeah. find that. It God, it was in New York Times a few years ago. It was. Okay. Um, what I look for was it after he won the Pulitzer? No, it was before. Okay. It was definitely. It was still. It was still tipping by butterfly. Okay, all right. Era. I'll find that. And I was talking about it, but then I also came to the. Then I also, you know, my conclusion was also, but you know, why can't I, why can't a writer spin a fiction? And so on. This idea that um, this is completely off topic. You know that Johnny Cash can shoot a man just to see him die, but he's a poet. But if Kendrick reacts about it, then Kendrick must have shot somebody. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but again, the, 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 it, it made me think of this is a bigger, the, the, the conflicts between, whether it's conflicts between African peoples or conflicts between slaves or African peoples and these British people who are trying to, to, to enslave them is a continuation of conflict. These are, if a, if a prisoner of war is launching a new fight against a captive. Change of location doesn't change the terms of engagement. Yeah. And and we've got people who may have known each other in mm -hmm. West Africa, or they may have fought against each other. I mean, we've got an example mm -hmm. of someone who had met with a British governor of a slave trading fort in mm -hmm. West Africa, and then he meets him again in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. Right? So... Yeah. It's rich he didn't do anything to help the dude, though. It's like yeah. you know who he is, like, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. He said he was going to. Uh -huh. Whether or not he would have, I, we don't know. He died, um, and then you know this man Wager becomes one of the leaders of the, this largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, crap, we're actually out of time. Oh, well, we're almost out of time. We got one minute. What did I? What didn't I ask you? Okay, there's Dan. We'll save you. Huh? Marlon James and Vincent Brown, that was absolutely fantastic. I thank you so much. It was really just um, enlightening, but most mo more than anything, just joyful. Really, just uh, just really enjoyable to listen to you both reframe and and reconsider the language we use, the history that we know, the the stories that we tell each other and that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you, Dan. And thanks so much, Marlon. Fantastic conversation. I look forward uh, to our next one. Yeah, thanks, man. Well, let's do it again. We'll plan on doing it again in person next time, for sure. Thank good. you yeah, so God, much. Everything. Have we actually met yet? I don't think we've met yet. No, we haven't met in person. person. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring you both to Cleveland to make it happen. Yeah. Marlon James, Vincent Brown, thank you so much. Bye, guys. Okay. Bye, everyone. Take care. 
And thank you for joining us for today's virtual forum featuring the 2021 Anisfield Wolf Book Award winner in nonfiction, Vincent Brown. He's the Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. Our forum today was moderated by Marlon James. He is the 2015 Anisfield Wolf Book Award winner and author of A Brief History of Seven Killings, among other novels. This forum is sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation's African American Philanthropy Committee, and it's also the Lucille D. and Robert Hayes Grease Forum on Cultural Arts. Lucille and Robert Grease were lifelong Clevelanders dedicated to the welfare and enhancement of the philanthropic institutions of their city, and they contributed to hundreds in the fields of health, education, and the cultural arts. Special thanks to Sally and Bob Grease and Ellen Grease Cole. We're so grateful for your passion and your longtime support of the City Club. Our forum today is also part of our Authors in Conversation series, which is sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to all of our sponsors for their support. Special thanks as well to our community partners, the Ennisfield Wolf Book Awards, the Maltz Museum of Jewish Heritage, and our community media partner, the Northeast Ohio Solutions Journalism Collaborative. All of City Club's virtual forums are presented for free, thanks to generous support from Bank of America, PNC, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. You can join them in supporting City Club's mission by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or simply texting the word donate to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582. And follow a few quick steps to make your donation. Be sure to join us this Friday, November 19th, for the final forum in our criminal justice series of the year. We will be hearing about the construction of the Cuyahoga County Justice Center, a construction project that is much more than just a new building. We'll be joined by Karen Chin. She was part of the group of national consultants who assisted Cuyahoga County leadership in the first phase of the work. Rachel DeSell of the Cleveland Documenters will be moderating that conversation. And there are still a few tickets available. You can purchase them and learn more about our upcoming forums at cityclub.org. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Dan Maltrip. This forum is now adjourned. <laughs>